Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. In this episode, you'll hear me, Jenny Sholick, in conversation with Imani Rupert Gordon, the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights, Chris Hayashi, the executive director of the Transgender Law Center, and choreographer Arthur Pita. This interview was recorded on Thursday, June 11th, 2020, and first aired on Facebook on Friday, June 12th, 2020, before the streamed presentation of Arthur Pita's Bjork Ballet. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's Shelter in Place Meet the Artist Conversation. I'm Jenny Scholick, the Associate Director of Audience Development at San Francisco Ballet and your host for our conversation today. For those of you here in San Francisco, you know that our Meet the Artist conversations normally happen immediately before a performance in the Opera House, but due to COVID-19, really all of our activities have moved online, including this one. Due to that, and maybe especially today, I ask you to bear with us with any technical difficulties or strange things with sound, or if my little dog starts barking, we're all working from home and all doing our best to be here today. So today's Meet the Artist talk is gonna be a little bit different than what we normally do. Um, of course, performances and Meet the Artist conversations weren't the only programs that had to be canceled due to COVID-19. One of the other programs that was cut short was our Night Out series. And as part of that program, we partner with organizations in San Francisco that serve the LGBTQ plus community in order to highlight the important work that they do in our city, in our state, and around the country. Unfortunately, this year we weren't, didn't have the opportunity to do that for two of our three partner organizations, um, the National Center for Lesbian Rights and the Transgender Law Center. And so we wanted to do that today at the beginning or towards the beginning of Pride Month. So I am so pleased to be joined by National Center for Lesbian Rights Executive Director Imani Rupert Gordon and Transgender Law Center Executive Director Chris Hayashi to hear a bit about their work and what we can do to better support their organizations. And then right after this, we will chat briefly with Arthur Pita, who is the choreographer of Bjork Ballet, which will be streaming, hopefully, just immediately after this conversation. So thank you for being here with us today. And with no further ado, I'd like to introduce Imani and Chris. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I would love if you could both just start by telling us a little bit about yourselves um, and how you found yourselves heading up your respective organizations. You want to kick off Imani or do you want me to? <laughs> Oh, uh, sure. So um, I'll start off by saying, so uh, my name's Imani Rupert Gordon. Um, I use pronouns she, her, and hers, and I'm the executive director for NCLR. Um, this is, I'm almost at my third, my third month here, so I'm very new to the position. Uh, before this, I worked at, um, I was in Chicago, and I was the executive director of an organization called Affinity Community Services, and Affinity serves um, the entire LGBTQ community by highlighting the experiences of Black LGBTQ uh, women. And then before that, I um, ran the Broadway Youth Center, and the Broadway Youth Center serves um, LGBTQ people, um, young people experiencing homelessness and housing instability. And so um, moving to NCLR is something that, um, that I've 
been really happy to, to make this transition, but also just naming too that uh, my interests really lie in serving the LGBTQ community from looking at the people that are at the margins and the most un underrepresented in our, um, in our community. Because if we start from the folks that are the most underserved, then we're all going to be better for that. And so now that I'm at um, NCLR, you know, our uh, you know, the majority of the work that we do is high impact litigation, but we also do uh, legislation, um, public policy and advocacy and public education. So um, there's a lot of ways we can get to LGBTQ equality. And I, um, you know, this is something that uh, is a long lifelong passion of mine. And also that something that um, is literally making my life better. So it's been an honor to be here so far. Um. It's really fun to be on this call with you, Imani. Um, so my name is Chris Hayashi. I'm the executive director at the Transgender Law Center. I've been executive director at TLC for probably about, I don't know, five years or so. I was deputy director before that. Um, I grew up in Seattle, but then I uh, went to school here in California. So I really cut my teeth in a lot of the youth organizing that was happening in the like uh, mid 90s or so here in California and um, I uh, took on my first executive director gig uh, at the age of 23 at Youth United for Community Action which is a youth of color um, organizing project here in California. Uh, I then went on to uh, be the co-director at the Audrey Lord Project which is a LGBT people of color organizing project uh, based in Brooklyn, New York uh, where I was there for 10 years, um, and while I was there, we launched a project called Trans Justice, which at the time was one of the only organizing projects specifically led by and for trans and gender nonconforming people of color. So when I left the Audrey Lord project, I knew that I really wanted to do work that was about winning justice, equality, and liberation for trans people, but particularly black and brown trans people. So that's what brought me to the Transgender Law Center um, and is a lot of what has focused my work over the last uh, period at TLC. That's great, both of you, thank you. Um, both of you began to kind of hint at it, but I wondered if you could each speak in a little more detail about the work that your organization does, both kind of maybe in the big picture and also if you could give some examples of kind of some of the specific projects that you're working on now, if possible. Why don't you start this time, Chris? Sure. Um, so Transgender Law Center, we are the largest national trans-ed organization in the country. Grounded in legal expertise and committed to racial justice, we move a range of community-driven strategies that are ultimately about keeping trans and gender nonconforming people alive, thriving, and fighting for our liberation. So what this means is we basically do what it takes. So if it means impact litigation, if it means policy advocacy, if it means movement building, if it means public education or training, um, we do what is needed to keep our communities safe and thriving and fighting for justice. We're headquartered here in Oakland, California, but we also have an office in Atlanta, Georgia in partnership with Southerners Underground. We have an office in Brooklyn, New York. And at this point we have staff in about five or six other states, mostly in the, the Midwest and the South. Um, so similar to what Imani was talking about, like our work very much prioritizes the needs and the leadership of communities within the trans and gender nonconforming community who are most impacted, most under attack um, in, in the priorities of our work. So, you know, I, I will share some examples of some of the work that we're moving um, in this moment. 
So, you know, we really think about who are the communities who are really struggling to survive. And one of the things that we did in this period of the global pandemic um, is we knew that transgender immigrants in detention already were facing horrific violence, harassment, and discrimination. And we knew that under COVID, that people would be even more vulnerable, would be even more susceptible to the global pandemic. Um, so we filed a federal class action lawsuit um, arguing that transgender non-conforming people need to be released for detention. And this was part of a larger campaign that's happening all across the country to free all people in prisons, jails, detentions, particularly in this time of a global pandemic. Uh, I'll turn it over to Ronnie. That's amazing. I always hear, love hearing about the, the work that you all do um, because it's, it's important and it's so impressive to hear. Um, so we do, you know, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but you know, our organizations uh, very much are in line with each other. And for some time, we used to be one organization. Um, but the, uh, the work that we do, like I said before, we really prioritize um, high impact litigation, um, but also doing uh, legislation, public policy, and education. And we do a variety of work. You know, um, one of the programs that we that we have that I'm not sure that everyone is most aware of is our immigration and asylum program. And uh, that is helping uh, LGBTQ folks um, really um, get asi get asylum. And that's not something that's that's easy to do for LGBTQ to LGBTQ folks. Uh, and we've been doing this work for uh, an incredibly long time and work and it works in tandem with um, with uh, the, the other work that we do. You know, when we, I think a lot of folks, they hear that that's more of a direct service and you're not really a direct service organization. But the thing is we have to work in, these things aren't separate in that um, people don't experience them separately. If we say, oh, we're not a direct service organization. Someone doesn't come to um, an organization and it's like, oh, you know, like these are um, sort of the advocacy needs I need, but I'll go somewhere else for a direct service. And so this is an opportunity for NCLR to be able to meet people where they're at and provide um, just more holistic resources to help get folks to a safer place. Um, and then we also are, you know, we're uh, definitely, we have uh, President Setting victories that has been something that has been really, um, really exciting for us. You know, we've um, recently we uh, there was a uh, transgender uh, prisoner that um, is now able to uh, get the um, get the affirming surgery that she needs while she's in prison, which is something that's really, uh, which is super super important. And this is actually a human right, and that's what and that's and that's what we're arguing is that we um, we need to be able to take care of everyone and making sure that our needs. That our needs meet everyone, you know. Um, NCLR was um, uh, was created so that because there was a hole in the movement, there was a way that um, that women and lesbians specifically weren't part of the LGBTQ movement, and NCLR came in to fill a hole. And we've um, and how we interpret that is that we continue to fill holes. So whatever is, um, whenever there is anyone experiencing discrimination in the LGBTQ community, then that's something that's really important to us, especially when the ways that someone experiences uh, discrimination um, is, uh, you know, is a violation of the way that we look at feminism and uh, gender violent, violence and not having gender just systems, especially in the LGBTQ movement is very much in the in the realm of things that we do. And so, um, and so that is like a prior, that's always a priority of ours. But we also do um, amazing other work, you know, our, um, uh, 
you know, we work with youth, we work with older adults, uh, we work with um, uh, decarcerating young folks. And, you know, in the wake of, you know, knowing that uh, since COVID-19, we've done a great deal to work to get young people in detention facilities actually out of these facilities because we know that it's not safe with, with COVID. But then also, um, I mean, too many young people are in juvenile facilities too. And so um, really making strides to make this make this make this um, safer for all youth. And we know that uh, LGBTQ youth are disproportionately um, in these in these facilities. So that's some of the work that we do. Fabulous. So two kind of two different strands that I'd like to pick up on. Amani, you mentioned that TLC and NCLR have a joint history. And I wondered um, if either or both of you wanted to speak to that joint history and maybe also how you continue to work together today. Sure. So I'm, I'm happy to start. I mean, I think you, I, again, as someone who has just stepped in this position, you know, you're going to know much better than me. But, you know, as I, as I understood it, you know, um, we recognized that there was a need in the move. Like I said before, we prioritize the um, like gender discrimination. That is a big part of what we do. And um, we recognize that there's a need in the community for a, um, an organization specifically dedicated um, to uh, uh, the experiences of transgender people in regards to the law, and so figuring out how to how to have a um, uh, have a, its own five hundred one c three to do that, and so I think and uh, NCLR uh, had a program uh, that was like uh, there was a program at. Uh, at NCLR that eventually uh, turned into TLC, and so uh, so the work that TLC was doing for uh, for a couple of years was actually housed at at NCLR, and then and I think this is actually really this is really important is that when you think about wanting to do the work well, sometimes you have to recognize that you're not in the position to do the work the best, and so um, whereas I think another organization might have tried to hold on to. Um, uh, a program like that. The plan was always for um, TLC to be its own uh, organization. And that means something to NTLR because we were actually the, um, uh, we were the project of an, of an organization of, um, uh, so, uh, of the equal rights advocates. So we have had that experience before. And so um, I think it felt really good for folks to be able to be part of the movement like that. But I don't know, how do you uh, understand it, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reality is like, for TLC, so we're the largest trans organization and we're national and there's no way that we would be here without NCLR, right? I mean, we started as a project of NCLR and then even when we spun off on our own, like NCLR is like one of our um, closest partners and we know that we can always rely on NCLR to support us, to be there with us, to have our backs. Um, and as a, as a trans organization, as a trans organization, that leads really strongly around racial justice, um, that's really rare. And, you know, I can just give one concrete example. Um, well, one, like our staff work together all the time and we like always are going to your staff who are like such champions around trans youth and trans migrants. And um, really just to say like our, the trans movement would not be able to sustain itself and have the support it needs without the work that NCLR does. Um, but one really con concrete thing to share. So very recently, we co-counseled on a uh, on uh, impact litigation to get case together. Uh, it was with Foley and Lardner, and it was the Prescott um, versus uh, Rady's Children's Hospital case in San Diego. 
And so this was a federal lawsuit that was filed by the mother of a transgender teenage boy um, who sued the hospital for discrimination against her son because what happened is her son, whose name was Kyler, um, was not doing well um, in terms of his mental health. Um, he tried to go to the hospital to get the health care that he needed, that everyone needs, and instead he faced discrimination as a transgender boy, and so he just couldn't stay there anymore, so he had to leave. Um, and then sadly and very unfortunately, he, um, he died from suicide soon after. So we co-counseled on that case together, which was really about really being clear that transgender people, transgender youth, that we deserve the same treatment and healthcare that everyone else deserves. Um, and we deserve, to, we deserve to live. And we won a amazing historic settlement in that case. Um, and it's just a very, and this happened very recently. So it's just one like recent example of how we've been able to really uh, fight together um, and fight for our communities. Wonderful. So the other idea I wanted to pick up on that I think you both alluded to is, of course, everything going on in the world right now, both COVID and, of course, um, all of the conversations that are happening around racial justice and systemic racism in this country must be impacting your work, I have to imagine. I mean, it's work you're already doing, but I'm curious how your organizations have had to shift or change or not shift or change. You know, I'm, I'm curious what your experiences have been over the last three months, which I think have... Um, been so challenging for everybody, you know, across the world. Yeah. No, that's a that's a great question. And and one I think uh we both probably get a lot right now. Um, you know, I'll say as a black queer woman myself, um, it doesn't change my view in particular. You know, when uh, I think a lot of times this is because it's it's Pride Month right now, uh, and there is this talk about the intersection between racial justice and um pride or LGBTQ communities. Um the thing is that this is the only way that I experience um uh, pride is looking is is through my experience as a black woman and so um, and so my perspective isn't isn't different and I think that's something that uh, the team knew that I was bringing to and so and like I said before NCLR has had a very long history of prioritizing racial justice and to be intersectional in the ways that we do our work to be inclusive and to bring more people in and that's a priority of ours to always bring more people in I will say that something that has come up is that it has changed the conversation so that we are that I I hear that more people are prioritizing this um, like this more intersectional view of LGBTQ equality and how it looks with with racial justice as well, which I think is exactly what needs to happen. And so I think whatever it takes to get there is, is really amazing. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago that very few of the people we're hearing talking about this now would have said something like Black Lives Matter. And that's something that we're hearing from absolutely everyone right now from from so many people and really like we we see other people having a more nuanced understanding of how race works in this um uh in this country and i think that that's something that's that's brilliant and this is an opportunity for us to further this conversation because when we're um looking at this with another axis then i think it's easier for us to to do that in other ways as well you know that we 
do have to consider how we look at LGBTQ equality, how that ex how that experiences uh, impacts Black people and people of color. What um, when we're talking about economic stability, what that means, access to resources, you know, health outcomes that are associated with all of these identities. These are all things that we have to consider when we're going to get to LGBTQ equality. And so I'm excited that we're starting to have that conversation now, like collectively. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks, Imani. And then I guess for I, I would like to also really um, ground this this answer in really the times we are in. And Imani, you already spoke to it. Um, but you know, just to name, like we are in a period where we are seeing uh, continued and escalated black deaths and murders. And so to name George Floyd, Tony McDade, Breonna Taylor, Ahmad McDade, Ahmad Aubrey. Um, all feels really important and so many more lives that we've lost. Um, a time when people in all 50 states and around the world are rising up in protest of the murders of black people, only to face an escalation of police violence, of military repression, of state repression. And we've also seen this escalation in white supremacist violence. Um, and that this also is all coming in a time when we're in the midst of this global pandemic where we have Many of us have lost people. Many people have lost jobs and homes and face extreme isolation. And in which trans people, black and indigenous people, along with other communities of color, migrants, people with disabilities who are deaf or ill and elders are just hit most severely by this pandemic. And for trans communities, the reality is we were already facing violence. We we're already facing harassment, discrimination and struggling to have our basic needs met, particularly for black and brown trans people. And this has all gotten so much worse under the Trump administration, along with the ongoing murders of transgender women of color, and of which the majority are black trans women. Basically under the Trump administration, what we have seen is that there are so many communities under attack. And for us, for trans people, what we have witnessed is a systematic and relentless strategy to roll back the few rights and protections that we have won to decrease services and ultimately this is about trying to deny our humanity and our very existence. And for trans people in this time, what we are also seeing, and this most impacts black, trans, gender nonconforming and non-binary people is, and feel most deeply, is the erasure, the erasure of our deaths, the erasure of our loss and our grief in this time of such immense loss and violence. Um, I mean, overall, what we are seeing is the failure of our society to value people, to value humanity, is more visible than it has ever been before. But what we're also seeing, right, is that beautiful and powerful and sustained uprisings all across the nation and world, many that are led by Black LGBT leaders that are mobilizing so many people. We are also continuing to make bold demands, and we're winning. Right, the call to defend police and invest in communities is now a national conversation, which I have never seen in my lifetime. And our people in Minneapolis, the grassroots organizations, the majority of whom are led by black LGBT people, by black women, as well as the elected uh, officials there, they showed us that we can win, that we can actually win to defund the police and invest in community. People have probably heard that last week, um, grassroots organizations won a historic victory when they were able to get 
a veto-proof majority of the Minneapolis City Council to commit to defend and dismantling their police department, invest in, approve, invest in proven community alternatives, and specifically to name the Black trans City Council people there, Andrea Jenkins and Philippe Cunningham. So, you know, in this moment, the call to end state systems that were never intended to keep people safe, never intended to serve our people, and have only caused incredible harm and death at the national level is stronger than ever before. Thank you, Chris. So I, I do want to shift the conversation just a little bit to ask what are ways for people to get involved, whether that's individuals who are watching and want to be involved or organizations like San Francisco Ballet, which, you know, large nonprofit organizations, arts organizations, artists, what are ways that we can better support the work that you do with your organization? You want me to kick off money? I feel like you've been- Go ahead. First. I feel like I, I try to alternate. So why don't you go first now? Yeah. yeah sorry. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I will say this, like this, this is a time where more so ever than before, we need to look to the leadership of Black trans women and femmes who have always led our communities. So one thing that TLC did this year, which, and this builds off many years and decades of labor within the community, is we launched the Trans Agenda for Liberation, which is a community-led guide towards the world we deserve. We believe trans people hold the knowledge, power, and joy to create a future where we can all not only survive, but thrive. This agenda addresses the urgent political, legal, and social violence enacted against our communities while channeling trans imagination to bring our boldest visions to life. The trans agenda grows out of the work that communities and individuals are already doing and have done for so long and points very, very clearly towards the work that still needs to be done. We recognize the trans agenda as a living and loving document that's ever evolving as we must to set all people free. And the very first pillar of that document feels more timely than ever so before. It's called Black Trans Women and Black Trans Femmes Leading and Living Fiercely. And it was created by Black Trans Women and Femmes from all across the country. And it very, very clearly lays out the solutions that our communities need in this time. So I would really encourage people to go to our website, to sign on to support the trans agenda and to continue to lift up the leadership of Black trans women and femmes. Oh my goodness, that is beautiful. I love that, Chris. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't aware, so I will check that as, uh, as well. Um, you know, I would say uh, for us, we just redid our website at NCLR. It's nclrights.org, but what I'm really interested in there is that we've done a, a really a job of bucketing our work. And what I don't think, something that um, when I came to NTLR, uh, something that I realized is that um, a lot of times it's intimidating to uh, to go to a legal organization and to look to resources. Because uh, if you're not a lawyer, and I'm not a lawyer, uh, if you're not, it seems like some of this stuff is is written in a language that you don't always understand. And so one of the things that we're working on is making our information more accessible to absolutely everyone. And so if there's something that you're looking for in the LGBTQ um, community, things that have been done, things that still need to be done, 
come to our website, check out the, you know, we have blogs and press releases, resources, FAQ sheets, um, things that you can find out about what's going on, uh, what we're pushing for, and what what needs to come next. And so um, I would say like a way to get involved is actually finding out something that's out there. You know, is realizing that a lot of times we we look at things and we're just, we're happy it happens. You know, when marriage equality happens, like people are happy it, it happens, you know, but there's a, a long strategy that goes into that, that, that this isn't something that just happens overnight, that um, this is based in things. And a lot of times we, there are steps to get somewhere and uh, we're trying to do a better job of outlining how to get there and how we've gotten there on our website. So come check us out, nclrights.org. Uh, we also have a, um, a helpline that if you can, uh, you can go, you can, uh, the helpline, you can, you can uh, send an email or you can call in, but if you need resources um, in any state, just give a call and uh, we can help find resources uh, where you are in the, in the country. So uh, we'd love to, we'd love to help. And, and if I can just add also, I, I should say we, we have a helpline as well. It's probably modeled off of yours actually. Um, so that's definitely a resource for trans folks across the country as well. Um, but then I also want to say that, you know, I, I think that this is a time where it's, it's, more important than ever before for us to be shifting resources and supporting Black trans women and fed fem-led organizations um, to make sure that they have what they need in this moment. And so in the Bay Area, we're so lucky because we have such an incredible Black trans women-led organizations like the Transgender Gender Variant Intersex Justice Project, the Black LGBT Migrant Project, the Trans Cultural District, and the Taja Coalition. So I will say another thing that's so, so important to do like right now is to look up any one of those organizations and to move donations, to move support to them um, because it's, it's, this is the time, this is the time. Yeah, I, I do want to echo that, that during this time, you know, I think everyone, there's a lot of organizations to start, but I do think that during this time in particular, there are folks that are actually on the ground doing this work on outside, and we are at a, at a very special time. Uh, this is a, a special moment that we're in, and I do want to highlight these organizations in particular, especially organizations led by uh, Black LGBT folks, especially um, uh, Black trans women. Um, right now, this is, the, this is the time for that. Thank you both. So I have one last question. Um, and then we are actually we've taken a little longer than I told you we would take. So um, I just didn't want to cut anyone off. So my last question is, I wonder if you could, from either a personal or a professional standpoint, just speak about how or if the arts or dance specifically factor in to your own life. I'm, I'm curious and I'm sure that our audiences as well. Hmm. Or art. You know, I will say that um, right now the, um, you know, what I realized self-care was for me um, not too long ago is that I really, I love guitars. I love electric guitars. I like to play them, but more than that, I've been um, building one, which has been an intense amount of uh, just fun for me. And it's been, uh, I've understood self-care uh, in a way that I never have before doing that. Um, so, you know, when I think of art, that's what I think of. But, you know, like to dance specifically, I will say that, um, you know, it's something that I've never studied. And um, I still remember um, the first time I had seen an Alvin uh, Ailey performance that uh, it's, it's this kind of beauty that I didn't know. I didn't know how to, 
I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to express that. I saw that this, you know, like this, this strength and this beauty together, just, um, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to describe it because it's not, um, dance isn't something that I see a lot, but I will never forget that first time, you know, that I had this experience and I had this feeling that, that I hadn't felt before. And um, it just like something so beautiful and so strong, but so graceful as well. And um, I just, I, I'd never had that feeling. It was just, it was just beautiful to see. Um, yeah, so I, I am not at all an artist, <laughs> um, but my partner is an artist um, and he's amazing. Uh, I, I will say though, I mean, I think that, that art and cultural work and resistance um, have always gone hand in hand. And, you know, we're seeing it throughout our streets today and the protests and the beautiful signs and the murals. Um, I mean, I really believe that art makes visual our demands um, and makes visual our power and the beauty of our resistance as well as just the the brilliance of the the vision that we have for the worlds that we are fighting for and seeking to create so i think being able to see that to hear it in music to see it in dance like that our, our movements won't be able to win without that's beautiful. That is beautiful. Thank you. So with that, I think that's kind of the perfect note to end on here. Um, Imani, Chris, I want to thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, we're so sorry we couldn't have these conversations in person, but I'm so glad we were able to meet in this virtual space today and learn more about what your organizations are doing um, and about both of you. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, fantastic. All right, everybody. Um, welcome back. Uh, thank you for being with us for this Meet the Artist conversation today. We're going to take a few minutes now to chat with Arthur Pita, who is the choreographer of Bjork Ballet, um, which will be streaming in just a few minutes after this conversation ends, and talk a little bit about his ballet and share a few other things that you can look forward to later this afternoon. So welcome, Arthur. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So, you know, I think at this point, you're fairly well known to a lot of our audience. You've made two works here at San Francisco Ballet. We've seen Bjork twice. So I'm not going to ask you for a full, you know, accounting of who you are, but I would love if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, maybe what you would like the audience to know, and a little bit about your relationship to San Francisco Ballet. Okay, uh, I am Portuguese uh, by nationality, born in South Africa. Um, I now live, I've been living in, in London since 1991, and I work as a freelance choreographer. And I've been making work, I, I've been making work probably for about the last 20 years. Um, and um, I'm, it's been a very unexpected path, actually. Um, I'm going from very, very much uh, contemporary dance to creating work for theatre, to creating work for opera, to creating work for my own company, to creating work for uh, family audiences. 
uh, to cringe work for very much adult audiences, and then um, commissions. And somehow on this wonderful journey, and I feel so blessed about it, I um, have ended up having two wonderful uh, commissions with San Francisco Ballet and uh, fell in love with San Francisco as a city. And alternatively, also worked uh, re- just recently with Axis Dance Company uh, based in Oakland. Yeah, which such a cool organization. I I yeah. love the work that Mark Bruth does there and, and that yeah. that company's doing. So. They're amazing. They're amazing. Yeah, hope to see you back in the Bay Area with one of us sooner rather than later. Me so, too. <laughs> we're here today to talk a little bit about uh, the ballet you're about to see, Bjork Ballet, which premiered mm-hmm. in 2018 as part of the Unbound Festival. So I wondered if you could speak a bit about what inspired you to make this work and what are some of the themes um, in the work that an audience member might keep an eye out for. Yeah. So um, so uh, coming out of the Unbound, um, I really wanted to take that brief um, from Helgi and I wanted to find a place where I could just feel a little bit more liberated. So I normally go for um, quite narrative works. And I'd just done Salome uh, for San Francisco Ballet, which is a dark, intense piece with orchestra and, you know, everybody knows what (laughs) Salome entails. Um, So I wanted to find really something was a bit of a relief. And for me, um, that would be to go somewhere a little bit more abstract. So the moment I start thinking about something a bit more abstract, I think the what plays such an important element in an abstract work uh, is the music. And I started thinking about the, the music and I've had for a long time been a huge fan of Bjork and been listening to a lot of her tracks and always thought, oh, that would be so wonderful to see a dance to that. And and then something clicked and I thought, well, hold on, you know, Helgi is Icelandic. So I wonder if there might be a way that we can maybe get the rights to this music. And the moment I mentioned it to Helgi, he got quite excited. And he said, oh, that's a great idea. I'll look into it straight away. And... Um, Lo and behold, we did get the rights to use the music, which was such a thrill because normally be awkward to say no, um, which is understandable. Um, so then there was the difficulty of of going through the catalogue of all her music and you know having to try and make that work in a you know you know in a half an hour work, which was really uh, a challenge because there's so many of the tracks that I love and also her tracks aren't like a commercial two minute radio songs, you know, some of them are five, six minutes long, you know, and they're kind of epic. So you, you need to, you need to go through the whole journey of all of them. Um, So that kind of then, once I had made my selection, then I try to kind of thread through, I wouldn't say a narrative, but kind of like um, a dream logic to it. So I like to think of it as a dream ballet mm-hmm. and that there's some kind of dream logic to it within the themes of the songs and kind of like this uh, Bjorkian uh, world. Yeah. I, you know, I, I love that idea. I think it really does. You really get that from the ballet, right? That, that there are these multiple songs involved and yet they tie together in this way that you do end up following certain kind of characters or personalities throughout it. Um, so that there's this sort of logic that hangs together as kind of illogical as certain the ballet it, making. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard thing to live up to because Bjork herself is such an incredible 
um, artist and her, you know, it's, she's so, I think, ahead of time. So I think, I think we're, we're constantly sort of catching up with her and, and what she's doing and what, you know, because she's so innovative in, in all her forms, like the music, the videos, you know, the fashion, everything. So, um, so you kind of try and like, you, so I feel like I was having to like reach up to kind of try and find that place, which wouldn't just be, um, you know, a, a, a a representation of her but really just more like like i like to think of it like a planet like a, another place which yeah. echoes her spirit i love that do you, do you know if she has seen the ballet or has she watched it or is I, she watch it online this week as it i don't know i don't know i know that i sent her an, a personal email on the day that we opened and i know that we sent um her and her management the video so and and nothing came back saying you know tear that down immediately <laughs> um so maybe she hasn't had time maybe she will have time now um I, yeah i don't i don't know yeah. well hopefully she'll if she hasn't okay. watched it this week and, okay. and we'll say a big thank you to her and her team not only for the rights for you to make the ballet but the rights to stream it this yes. week well so so, so thrilled about that yeah great yeah, we all are so I want to um, kind of circle back around on what you were saying about kind of having to reach for York's kind of artistic level in some way or her vision of the world. And, you know, as I was thinking about this piece, as I was thinking about everything that, that we're seeing going on in the world right now, I was really just kind of you know, really sitting with the idea that dance as an art form has such an ability to both reflect the world, reflect what's happening, good and bad, and also the capacity to create these kinds of worlds on stage that offer something different, right, than the real world, um, to imagine something different. And I think I've always felt this about Bjork, um, Bjork Ballet, but it really does that. It really imagines kind of an alternate universe and puts that on stage in some really fascinating ways. And so I'm curious, you know, as you as an artist are sitting here in this moment in time, how are you feeling about this particular work and what it has to say about the world? Um, but also maybe what are some of the things that you're thinking you might want to explore when you're able to get back into a studio? Has this moment kind of made you reflect on what you want to say with your art in a, in any kind of different way? Wow. Two amazing questions. Um, well, um, you know, the inspiration um, for the piece and what I feel like it's, what it, what it says, you're right. It was definitely trying to find an alternative world, an alternative universe, an alternative time even and um so that was very much um a part of my collaboration with marco 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 the designer of the costumes and and i i basically just put the set together so i think i called myself a scenic decor but really you know it was with the amazing san francisco team with uh, christopher dennis and everyone who just really helped put that together but i just wanted to create like a space um for the costumes to basically shine, but I didn't realize actually how 
you know, I was very happy with how well they, they blended, they came together. But one of the things that was happening, so Marco came to the studio and he started drawing um, these lines on the body and he was just following and echoing the lines of the body and he was doing this wonderful thing. And then he, all of a sudden he came up with one rehearsal, well, was it a rehearsal or a fitting? And he came up and he had just drawn something up and over the face and, and onto the head, this, and which, we, which I call really a mask. And I was like, wow, what is what is that? And he was like, oh, I just wanted to continue the line into the head. I didn't want the head to be separate from the costume, as it always is. He wanted the, the, the costume to blend into the head. So um, so I, we got very excited about this and how that could all work because then they were like, sometimes they covered completely with their heads and sometimes it's only partly covered and sometimes it's just the lines continuing. Um, but when we got to the frosty section, which is a section with um, six dancers and they are wearing the black and silver, um, and they are, they are completely covered, um, the costume coming up that way. And I remember looking at that immediately on stage and I, was, and I just said to Marco, wow, that looks so um, apocalyptic. You know, it feels like sometime in the future where maybe we can't breathe properly on the planet and, but they found a way and this is, that's the, that's the new normal of that, of that space and time being. And he was like, totally. And then lo and behold, I think on the first day of like, on, when all the lockdowns started happening, masks started becoming so important, I, you know, I, I immediately messaged him and I was like, wow, you were totally like ahead of the game in terms of like the, the kind of COVID identity. Um, so, so I feel like there is some kind of relevance. It was so weirdly, um, it was sort of like a, a predictive future in a way is what that, that piece really is in a way um and then basically this very um shiny this very metallic place which is which can reflect water which can reflect um the sky which kind of creates ripples along the backdrop so and it actually in the theater was so beautiful um that it's the 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 kind of the silver floor threw up this light um on top of the orchestra pit so um, when the character of the fisherman came forward and went fishing in the orchestra pit, actually there was, a re- it looked like the reflection of the, of the, the water was on the roof of the theatre, which was so stunning. So there were some wonderful accidents and I don't think we planned all these things. They just sort of happened. Um, and that absolutely, I think, um, f- feels like, something that would would feel relevant now when audiences are watching it. I think it's like, it's another place. Um, but in terms of making work after this, I've been asking that myself, you know, every day, what what is relevant? And there's so much coming up at the moment that I think everybody's overwhelmed. Um, just about Black Lives Matter, just about, you know, keeping a social distance. What, what does theatre mean? What, you know, what will audiences want? What are our experiences of being at home? We've all been reflecting so much. What are we yearning to see? You know, what's going to make us feel good? Uh, what's going to make us uh, connect to what we're looking at? What sort of imagery? And I keep asking myself that a lot. And it's, a, it's very interesting um, because at the moment I feel overwhelmed by everything so I feel like I'm just sort of absorbing absorbing it all but I know that I'm choosing to watch a lot of disaster movies on Netflix and I I don't know why um, in particular but I feel like I need to kind of see these apocalyptic uh, themes just to make myself feel better because um, 
I think because at the moment it, it just feels like we're in some kind of movie, you know, and I'm like, haven't we seen this before? And then in a way, if I watch a film, it kind of like um, uh, confirms to me that, uh, that that is a movie and what is happening is actually real. You know, I kind of separate the two. Um, yeah. Yeah, I hear you on that. That sort of the sense of unreality and then turning to some kind of art to snap ourselves back into what reality is in this moment. Yeah, how it compares. So we're running short on time, but I do want to ask, um, where else can we find you this afternoon as the Bjork stream occurs? Well, whilst the stream is happening, I'm going to be commenting on Facebook uh, on, uh, as it's happening. So I will tell the audiences to look out for certain bits that I, that I like and that, that, that excite me and a little bit of collaboration. And then uh, after that, I will be talking with Marco uh, live on Instagram about the costumes and catching up with him and seeing where he's at um, in Los Angeles. I think that'll be great. I'm really looking forward to both of those things. And, you know, I think it's such a rare opportunity that we get to hear from a choreographer kind of in the process of watching the work, sort of director's cut things. I'm looking forward to that as well as to hearing from Marco. So um, that is, we are at time. So I want to say a huge thank you to you, Arthur, um, as well as another big thank you to Amani and Chris for joining us today. Hope that all of you out there enjoy Bjork Ballet. And thank you so much for watching this Meet the Artist conversation with San Francisco Ballet. Fantastic. Thanks for listening to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. For more podcasts and other audience engagement programs, check out sfballet.org or your favorite podcast player.